Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and in this episode we'll hear about the rise of the Crusaders' new enemy, Nuradin, meaning light of the faith in Arabic. Nuradin was the son of Zengi who had united the Emirates of Mosul and Aleppo and captured the Crusader city of Edessa, which had in turn, of course, caused the disastrous Second Crusade. As we've heard before, the main reason why the First Crusade had been such a success and why the Crusader states had been able to survive in the heart of the Islamic world was because of the disunity in Islam at this time. The great Seljuk Empire, which had defeated the Byzantines at the Battle of Manzikert, had given way to a host of Turkish and Arab emirates, often more preoccupied with fighting each other than defeating the Crusaders. But as the 12th century progressed, Islam was becoming more united, starting with Zengi and then followed by his son Nuradin. Ultimately, this would lead to the creation of an, a unified Islamic state running from Syria to Egypt under the leadership of the great Saladin, who would become the nemesis of the Crusaders. As before, I'll read extracts from my bridge version of Sir Stephen Runciman's classic History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. Raymond of Antioch had been right to urge the leaders of the Second Crusade to march against Aleppo, for as you will hear later, his failure to persuade them would cost him his life. For the chief enemy of Christendom was Nuradin, and in 1147 a great army like that of the Second Crusade could have crushed him. He was master of Aleppo and Edessa, but Unur of Damascus and the petty independent emirs of the Orontes Valley would not have come to his rescue, nor could he have counted on help from his brother Saif Adin at Mosul, who had troubles of his own in Iraq. But the folly of the Crusaders drove Unur into alliance with him for as long as the danger lasted, and the chance given him of intervention in the affairs of Tripoli allowed him to strengthen his whole on central Syria. Raymond was further justified in refusing to join the crusade against Damascus. Neither he nor Jocelyn of Edessa could afford to leave their land exposed to Nuradin. Even while the crusaders were before Damascus, troops from Aleppo raided Christian territory. Under a flag of truce, Count Jocelyn went himself to Nuradin's camp to beg for clemency. All that he obtained was a temporary respite. Meanwhile, the Sultan of Konya, Massoud, at peace with Byzantium, took advantage of the discomfiture of the Franks to attack Marash. Raymond prepared to meet him, so Massoud sent to ask Nur ad-Din to make a diversion. His request was granted, but Raymond, with the alliance of a Kurdish chief of the assassins, Ali ibn Wafa, who hated Nur ad-Din far more than the Christians, surprised Surprised Nuradin in November 1148 as he swept through the villages in the plain of the Aswad al Fimia on the road from Antioch to Marash. Nuradin's two chief lieutenants, the Kurd Shiku and the Aleppo notable Ibn al Daya, had quarrelled. The former, 
refused to take part in the battle, and the whole Muslim army was forced into a hasty and ignominious retreat. Next spring, Nur ad-Din invaded the country again and defeated Raymond at Bagras, close to the former battlefield. He then turned south to besiege the fortress of Inab, one of the few strongholds left to the Christians east of the Orontes. Raymond, with a small army and a few assassin allies under Ali ibn Wafa, hurried to its rescue, and Nur ad-Din, misinformed of the strength of his force, retreated. In fact, the Muslim army of 6,000 horse outnumbered the Frankish of 4,000 horse and 1,000 infantrymen. Against Ali's advice, Raymond then decided to reinforce the garrison of Inab, but Nur ad-Din was now aware of Raymond's weakness. On the 28th, 8th of June 1149, the Christian army encamped in a hollow by the fountain of Murad in the plain between Inab and the Marsh of Garb. During the night, Nur ad-Din's troops crept up and surrounded them. Next morning, Raymond realised that his only chance was to charge his way out. But the terrain was against him. A wind rose and blew dust in the eyes of his knights as they pressed their horses up the slope. In a few hours, his army was annihilated. Amongst the dead were Reynald of Marash and the assassin leader Ali. Raymond himself perished by the hand of Shirku, who thus regained his master's favour lost at Famia. The prince's skull, set in a silver case, was sent by Nuradin as a gift to his spiritual master, the Caliph of Baghdad. Meanwhile, Jocelyn of Edessa, enjoying an uneasy truce with the Muslims, had refused to work in with his old rival, Raymond. His turn came next. Nur ad-Din passed on through Antiochene territory, completing his hold on the middle Orontes by the capture of Arzgan and Tel Kashafan, and then overpowering the garrisons of Arta and Harenk further north, and turning west to appear before the walls of Antioch itself and raid as far as the port of St. Simeon. Jocelyn made no attempt to rescue his fellow Franks, but marched on Marash in the hope of taking over the inheritance of Reynald, who was his son-in-law. He entered the city, but retired when the Turkish Sultan Massoud approached. The garrison that he left behind surrendered to the Seljuk Turks on the promise that Christian lives should be spared, but... As they and the clergy were taking the road to Antioch, they were massacred, one and all. The Turkish emir Massoud pursued Jocelyn to the neighbourhood of the fortress of Turbasal, but Christian reinforcements were approaching while Nur ad-Din had no wish to see Jocelyn, who was still his client, lose his lands to the Seljuk Turks. The emir Massoud found it politic to retire. Next, the Turkish autokids of the Jazeera, limited on the south by Nur ad-Din and his brothers, sought to expand their presence along the Euphrates at the expense of the Armenians of Gagar, who had been tributaries to Reynald. Jocelyn dissipated his energies in vainly sending help to Basil of Gagar. The Turkish autokid Kara Aslan took over the whole district of Gagar and Kaput to the delight of the Jacobite Christians to whom his rule was infinitely preferable to that of Reynald with his strong pro-Armenian and anti-Jacobite sentiments. In the winter of 1149, 
Nuradin broke with Jocelyn. His first attacks were unsuccessful, but in April 1150, as Jocelyn was riding to Antioch to consult with the government there, he was separated from his escort and fell into the hands of some Turkoman freebooters. They were ready to release him for a heavy ransom, but Nuradin heard of his capture and sent a squadron of his own cavalry to take him from his captors. They took Jocelyn prisoner, whereupon he was blinded and imprisoned at Aleppo. There he would die nine years later in 1159. Thus, by the summer of 1150, both the Principality of Antioch and the remains of the County of Edessa had lost their lords. But Nuradin did not venture to go further. When news reached Antioch of the death of Prince Raymond, the patriarch, Amory, put the city into a state of defence and sent urgently south to ask King Baldwin of Jerusalem to come to its rescue. He then obtained a short truce from Nuradin by promising to surrender Antioch if Baldwin did not arrive. The arrangement suited Nuradin, who was shy of attempting the siege of the city and who meanwhile was able to capture Apamea, the last Antiochian fortress in the Orontes Valley. Meanwhile, King Baldwin hastened north with a small company, mostly composed of Knights Templar. His appearance induced Nuradin to accept a more lasting truce, and it served to help to keep the Turkish emir Masoud from attacking the fortress of Tourbasel. But although Antioch was thereby saved, the principality was now reduced to the plain of Antioch itself and the coast from Alexandretta to Latakia. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. It then remained to settle the government of the two lordless domains. On Jocelyn's capture, Nuradin had attacked the fortress of Turbacel, but the Countess Beatrice put up so spirited a defence that he withdrew. It was clear, nevertheless, that Turbacel could not be held. It was overcrowded with Frankish and Armenian refugees from the outlying districts. The Jacobite Christians were openly disloyal, and the whole area was cut off from Antioch by Nuradin's conquests. The Countess was preparing to abandon her lands when a message came through from the Byzantine Emperor Manuel. He was aware of the situation and he offered to purchase from her all that was left of her county. Beatrice dutifully referred the offer to King Baldwin of Jerusalem who was at Antioch. The lords of his kingdom who were with him and the lords of Antioch discussed the offer. They were loath to hand over territory to a hated Byzantine, but they decided that it would at least be the Byzantine emperor's fault now if these places were lost to Christendom. The Byzantine governor of Cilicia, Thomas, 
brought bags of gold, how many we are not told, to the countess at Antioch, and in return she handed over to his soldiers the six fortresses of Turbesel, Ravendel, Samosata, Antab, Duluk, and Birayek. The king's army accompanied the Byzantine garrisons on their journey and escorted back the many Frankish and Armenian refugees who distrusted Byzantine rule and preferred the greater safety of Antioch. The countess then reserved one fortress from the sale, Rankulat or Rumkalat, on the Euphrates near Samosata, which she gave to the Armenian Catholicos. Why the Byzantine emperor bought these fortresses is uncertain. The Franks believed that in his pride he thought that he could hold them. It is unlikely, however, that he was so badly misinformed. Rather, he was probably looking ahead, for he hoped before long to march in force into Syria. If he lost these fortresses now, he could recover them then, and his claim would be beyond dispute. In fact, he lost them in less than a year to an alliance between Nuradin and the Turkish Seljuk Masud. The alliance had been made after Jocelyn's capture and had been sealed by the marriage of Nuradin to the Turkish Emir Masud's daughter. The fortress Turbasel was to be her dowry, but Masud did not join his son-in-law in his attack on Beatrice. Instead, he contented himself with capturing Kaisun and Behesni in the north of the county, giving them to his son, Kilijarslan. But in the spring of 1151, he and Nuradin both attacked the Byzantine garrisons, and the Turkish Autokids hurried to take their share. Antab and Dulak fell to Masud, Samosata and Birek to the Turkish Timotash of Mardin, and Ravendel fell to Nuradin. At the great fortress of Turbasel itself, the Byzantines resisted for a while but were starved out and surrendered to Nuradin's lieutenant Hassan of Membai in July 1151. Thereby, all traces of the county of Edessa were eliminated. The Countess Beatrice retired to Jerusalem with her children, Jocelyn and Agnes, who in time to come were to play disastrous parts in the downfall of the kingdom. So Edessa was gone, but Antioch remained. Raymond's death left the princess Constance a widow with four young children. The throne was hers by right, but it was felt that in such times a man must govern. Her elder son, Bohemond III, was only five years old at his father's death. Until he came of age, there must be a male regent. The patriarch, Amory, had taken charge at the moment of crisis, but the public opinion disliked the idea of a clerical regency. It was clear that the young princess ought to remarry. In the meantime, the proper regent should be her cousin, who was King Baldwin of Jerusalem, and acting as her nearest male relative rather than as an overlord. Therefore, Baldwin had hastened to Antioch on the news of Raymond's death. He dealt with the situation with a wisdom rare in a boy of 19, and his authority was universally accepted. He returned in the early summer of 1150 to give his authority to the sale of Countess Beatrice's lands. But he had too many anxieties in the south to wish to remain responsible for Antioch. He urged Constance, who was only 22, to choose another husband, and himself suggested three alternative 
five candidates. First, Yves of Nesle, Count of Soissons, who was a wealthy French noble who had come to Palestine in the wake of the Second Crusade and was ready to make his home there. Secondly, Walter of Falkenberg, of the family of Saint-Omer, which had held the lordship of Galilee in the past. And thirdly, Ralph of Merle, a gallant baron of the county of Tripoli. But Princess Constance was a proud young woman, and she rejected all three of Baldwin's suitors. Next, since Antioch was nominally a vassal of Byzantium, she asked the Byzantine Emperor Manuel to choose her a husband. Manuel was eager to comply and sent her his brother-in-law, the Caesar John Roger, who was a trusted friend of his and a Norman by birth, which Manuel thought might make him more acceptable to the princess. But he was frankly too middle-aged for Constance to find attractive, and instead she had fallen in love with a dashing young French knight of her own age, Reynald of Châtillon, who had come to make his fortune on the Second Crusade. They were betrothed in secret, and she travelled to Jerusalem to persuade King Baldwin to let them marry. He finally agreed, and they made a good couple, and together defended Antioch well against Nuradin for the next 10 years. Meanwhile, the attention of both Christians and Muslims alike was turned upon Egypt, for the Fatimid Caliphate there seemed near to complete disruption. Since the murder of the vizier al-Afdal, there had been no competent ruler in Egypt. This decided King Baldwin of Jerusalem to attack the Egyptian fortress of Ascalon. He made careful preparations, and on the 25th of January 1153, the whole army of the kingdom of Jerusalem, with all its siege engines, appeared before its walls. With the king were the grand masters of the hospital and the temple, with the pick of their men, the great lay lords of the realm, the patriarch, the archbishops of Tyre, Caesarea and Nazareth, and the bishops of Bethlehem and Acre. The relic of the true cross accompanied the patriarch. Ascalon was a tremendous fortress spreading from the sea in a great semicircle with its fortifications in excellent repair, and the Egyptian government had always kept it well stocked with armaments and provisions. For some months the Frankish army, though it could completely blockade the city, could make no impression on its walls. The pilgrim ships that arrived about Easter time added reinforcements to the crusader ranks, but they were countered by the arrival of an Egyptian fleet in June. The Fatimids did not venture to attempt to relieve Ascalon by land, but they sent a squadron of 70 ships laden with men and arms and supplies of all sorts. Gerard of Sidon, who commanded the 20 galleys that were all that the Christians could muster, dared not attack them, and the Egyptian ships sailed triumphantly into the harbour. The defenders were heartened, but the ships sailed away again after they had been unloaded, and the siege dragged on. Most formidable of the Frankish siege machines was a great wooden tower that overtopped the walls from which stones and flaming faggots could be shot right into the city streets. One night in late July, some of the garrison crept out and set fire to it, but a wind arose and the flaming mass was blown against the wall. The intense heat caused the masonry to disintegrate and by morning a breach was made. 
the Templar knights who manned that sector determined that they alone should have the credit of the victory. While some of their men stood by to prevent any other Christian approaching, 40 of their knights penetrated into the city. The garrison at first thought that all was lost, but then, seeing how few the Templars were, rounded on them and slaughtered them. The breach was hastily repaired, and the Templar corpses were hung out over the city walls. While a truce was held to enable each side to bury its dead, the king held a council in his tent before the relic of the Holy Cross. The lay nobles, discouraged by the reverse, wished to abandon the siege, but the patriarch and the grand master of the hospitallers, Raymond of Le Puy, persuaded the king to continue with it, and their eloquence moved the barons. The attack was renewed more vigorously than before. On the 19th of August, after a fierce bombardment of the city, the garrison decided to surrender, on condition that the citizens should be allowed to depart in safety with their movable belongings. King Baldwin accepted the terms and abided by them loyally. As a great stream of Muslims poured out of the city by road and sea to retire to Egypt, the Franks entered in state and took over the citadel with its vast store of treasure and of arms. The lordship of Ascalon was given to the king's brother, Amalric, Count of Jaffa. The great mosque became the Cathedral of St. Paul, and the patriarch consecrated as bishop one of his canons, Absalom. The capture of Ascalon was the last great triumph of the kings of Jerusalem, and it raised their prestige to a formidable height. To have won at last the city known as the Bride of Syria was a resounding achievement. But, in fact, it brought no great substantial gain. Though the fortress had been the base for raids into Frankish lands, Egypt no longer seriously threatened the Christians. It was perhaps for that reason that Nur ad-Din, with his far-sighted policy, had not attempted to interfere in the campaign, except for a projected expedition against Banyas, which he planned with the Emir Mujer of Damascus, but which came to nothing. He could not regret that Egypt was weakened, nor that Frankish attention should be diverted to the south. The Emir Mujir of Damascus was more easily impressed. He hastened to assure Baldwin of his devoted friendship, and he agreed to pay him a yearly tribute. While Frankish lords journeyed and raided as they pleased over Damascene territory, Frankish ambassadors came to the city to collect the money for their king. To the Emir of Damascus, Mujir and his counsellors, mindful of their own safety, a Frankish protectorate was preferable to their fate should Nur ad-Din become their master. But to the ordinary citizens of Damascus, the insolence of the Christians was unbearable. The Burid dynasty was proving itself a traitor to the faith in their eyes. Ayub, Emir of Baalbek, took advantage of this sentiment. His agents penetrated the city, spreading resentment against the Emir Mujir. There happened at this time to be a food shortage in Damascus, so Nur ad-Din held up the convoys that were bringing corn from the north, and Ayub's agents spread the rumour that this was the Emir Mujir's fault for refusing to cooperate with his fellow Muslims. Next, Nur ad-Din persuaded Mujir that many of the Damascene notables were plotting 
plotting against him, and Mujia, in panic, took action against them. When Mujia had thus lost the favour of both the rich and the poor in Damascus, Ayub's brother Shirku arrived as Nuradin's ambassador before Damascus, but he came truculently with an armed force, unusual for a friendly mission. The emir Mujia would not admit him to the city, nor would go out to meet him. Nuradin took this as an insult to his ambassador and advanced with a large army to Damascus. Mujia's desperate appeal to the Franks for help was sent out too late. Nuradin encamped before the walls of Damascus on the 18th of April 1154, exactly a week later, after a brief skirmish outside the eastern wall, a Jewess admitted some of Nuradin's soldiers into the Jewish quarter, and at once the populace opened the eastern gate to the bulk of Nuradin's army. The emir Mujia fled to the citadel but capitulated after only a few hours. He was offered his life and the emirate of Homs. A few weeks later he was suspected of plotting with old friends in Damascus and was ejected from Homs. He refused the offer of the town of Balis on the Euphrates and retired to Baghdad. Meanwhile the citizens of Damascus received Nuradin with every sign of joy. He forbade his troops to pillage, and he at once filled the markets with foodstuffs and removed the tax on fruit and vegetables. In conclusion, Nuradin's capture of Damascus heavily outbalanced Baldwin's capture of Ascalon. His territory now stretched down the whole eastern frontier of the Frankish states, and the Crusaders faced their most dangerous enemy yet. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd be hugely grateful if you left any ratings on this podcast. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear how the Kingdom of Jerusalem tried to reassert Crusader supremacy with an attack on Egypt.